So as, uh, as Vicky mentioned before, we are starting a new two-week sermon series, a uh, series called Walking the Path, and it's uh, my reflections on my you know, ministry and kind of the things that I want to leave you with. Um, and this is my last message series here as your lead pastor. And so it's, I, I, over the last month, I've been reflecting and trying to figure out what does it mean to look back on nine years here as the lead pastor, 14 years on staff as total, and 21 years of Grand Valley being my faith community. In many ways, I am a product of this faith community. My critical formation in faith all happened here at this church. And so, as I've been reflecting and trying to say, what do I do with these last two weeks? What do I say? What do I want to share with you? It's not about me giving you, here's the course, and here's the path ahead of you at all. You have an amazing team of, of elders and leaders and other churches around that are wanting to support and help this church through this transition. Transitions are a normal part of life. And so this isn't about me telling you, here's where to go next, not at all. But this is about me having this chance to be able to say to you, here's the things that I want you to hold on to as you figure out what this next season is. Now, many of you know that I uh, am leaving here and moving into a non-ministry career. I'm moving outside of the pastoral path. And one of the things that happens when pastors do that is they sometimes get asked this question, well, are you leaving because you've lost your faith? Are you having a crisis of faith? Have you given up on God? Those kinds of questions. And I want to actually thank you because that's the kind of thing that as I spoke with my friends who are pastors and people like leading up to making the announcement, they're like, hey, just you're going to get those questions. And you guys haven't. You guys haven't asked me that, and I want to say thank you for that, because what I hope it shows is my faith in God is not changed, uh, is not diminished, is not going away at all. Um, and so I hope that that's been something you've seen. Now, my relationship with God, though, has grown and changed over these 21, 14, or 9 years, or whatever time period you want to look at. And just like what we started with our service today with Joel's baptism, Baptism is a marker of change, of recognizing how someone's life has shifted and changed and how they're choosing to identify with Christ. I have talked numerous times about how being a disciple means our lives will change. Our understanding of God will change. I am not who I was at 25 when the elders of this church said, yeah, we think Brian should be the next lead pastor. And I went, uh, no. And then they gave me some time, and I realized, oh yeah, this is what God's doing. I'm not who I was when I had a blue and purple faux hawk playing a purple sparkly guitar on stage. Most of you don't remember that, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> there is evidence on Facebook. Um, there always is. But what I want to talk about is as we're walking this path and looking back at this, I want to talk today about Scripture in the Bible. And so I'm going to be talking about Scripture. We're going to quote from it a bit. But mostly this is, I want to share and talk about how my understanding and my love of faith has changed and grown and evolved over the years. So I'm a little self-reflective, but I hope there's things in this that you will learn and understand. Now, years ago, and I'm not going to say exactly when uh, or the exact details of this, but things made me question my understanding of Scripture, made me question the framework that I had been taught and how I had been kind of taught to view Scripture. And, and to kind of explain this, I want to use a metaphor that I really viewed Scripture as a jigsaw puzzle, that all the pieces had to fit together somehow, that all the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle, as they snapped together, as I learned more about it, as I figured out the shapes and how they connected, that everything would fit together. 
in some way, and as they fit together, it would also fit together with everything else happening in the world. Now, what this led to was this belief and understanding that I don't think anyone had ever explicitly taught me, but I had grasped and held on to, where I said that if I just understand the Bible well enough, everything's going to make sense. And that was a core belief that I had. But the problem with that is that when I treated the Bible like a giant jigsaw puzzle of interlocking pieces, the Bible had to fit together in a way that made sense to my finite human understanding. The limiting factor in that jigsaw puzzle understanding is always me. How much can I understand? How much can I memorize? How much can I know? And so I poured myself into studying this. It's probably why I liked doing a theology degree, is because I wanted to make all the pieces fit together. And this is just one of kind of the common metaphors that often exists around Scripture. And two of the other common ones that you may have heard me talk about before if you've been around for a while is that sometimes we want to view the Bible as some sort of divine rule book or cookbook. We think that it's a system of rules and we treat it that way that if we just study these rules right, if we know these rules, we'll get to the intended result. You know, I, I like to cook, but I often like to go off recipe and I treat recipes more as a suggestion rather than like the rules. And so it's why I'm not a very good baker, because baking is more of a science. You've got to have all the pieces interact properly. And so even when I'd see Scripture as a rule book, I'd be like, well, is that really what it meant? Is that really what it was? But then as you study Scripture more, if you're trying to make the Bible into a rule book, you come across verses that really make it hard to see the Bible as a rule book. In fact, I think it's something else. But let's look at an example from that from Proverbs. Proverbs is this beautiful book of poetry and wisdom that is drawn to, to help us see God and see life in a new way. And near the end of Proverbs, there's these two verses that are side by side. And the first one goes like this. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Don't answer the foolish argument of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Don't engage in foolish arguments. All right, that's a pretty straightforward rule. We can follow that one, can't we? Well, what's the next verse? Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. Meaning, if you don't correct the fool, they're going to think they are wise. Okay, but what happens when you put these side by side? These are one verse apart in the same book. This isn't even like a divide of history or context. Don't answer the foolish arguments, or be sure to answer the arguments. Which one is it? See, my jigsaw puzzle couldn't work when the pieces were shaped like this. And the pieces that are shaped like this are all throughout Scripture. And so I went through a phase in my life where I had to rediscover and relearn how do I view the Bible? What is the Bible? What is Scripture? What is it drawing to me towards? And along the way, I came across a theologian named Pete Enns who was very helpful to me. And a bunch of what I'm going to say, I'm going to quote from him a couple times and pull from him because his work and someone being further down this path than I was helped me come to a new metaphor. So I'm going to make you uncomfortable here, and I'm going to do that on purpose, and then we're going to walk through this, so don't get scared or worried in this moment. But here's how he writes in his book called How the Bible Actually Works. Pete writes, he says, the, Bi the Bible, seems to me, was never intended to work as a step-by-step -step instruction manual. Rather, it presents us with an invitation to explore. Or better, the Bible, simply by being an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse self, blocks us from the simple path of seeking from it clear answers 
and rather herds us towards a more subtle, interesting, and above all, sacred quest. I like this image here that he uses of the Bible herding us. If you've ever watched shepherds or sheepdogs at work, they're essentially taking sheep where they don't want to go. Or if you've ever herded cattle, you know, you use some implements to help the cattle move where they don't want to go. And so the Bible sometimes takes us where we don't want to go. But there's three words in there that probably stood out to you, and partially because I put them in yellow. Um, The Bible being its ancient, ambiguous, and diverse self. Scripture is ancient. That's the easy one that we can get to. We know the Bible is ancient. We know it was written thousands of years ago. We know it was written in a different time period, a different understanding, a different culture. And so we understand that like getting on a subway, you have to mind the gap. We have to recognize the gap between where we are now living in 2022 and the time periods in the era when Scripture was written. On top of that, we have the gap of languages. Scripture wasn't written in English. And we are indebted to the work of translators and scholars who have made Scripture accessible to us by having it in our language. And that work still goes on today as Scripture keeps getting translated into more and more languages so that people can hear God's Word in their own tongue. And that is an admirable goal and an admirable work to be part of. And so we get that the Bible is ancient. That one I don't think I need to spend too much time on. But the next one, the Bible is ambiguous. This is where my jigsaw puzzle really fell apart. Because a skilled debater, someone who knows how to craft their argument well, can really make the Bible say anything they want. You can take any position and you can find a way to justify that by picking and choosing your way through Scripture to get it to say what you want. And so here's how, here's how Pete reflects on this ambiguous nature of Scripture. He says, by ambiguous, I mean that the Bible, perhaps surprisingly, doesn't actually lay out for anyone what to do or think, or it does so far less often than we have let, been led to believe. Rather, when we are reading the Bible for spiritual guidance, we find we are usually left to work things out for ourselves at the end of the day. This isn't a drawback or a problem. This is by design. And here's where my jigsaw puzzle really started to fall apart. It's because I was reading Scripture looking for the rules. I was reading Scripture looking for the step-by-step, here's what to do. And what we find instead is that Scripture invites us on this journey of seeking God and seeking wisdom. Let's go back to our Proverbs example for a moment. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Don't answer the foolish arguments or be sure to answer the foolish arguments. Which one is it? See, this is the beauty of Scripture, is when Scripture presents these two in front of us, they are inviting us into a journey of wisdom, of saying, how do we seek God? How do we seek what we know of God through it all of Scripture? How do we let the Holy Spirit be guiding and shaping us and leading us? How do we use the wisdom that God calls us to, to discern in the moment whether or not you should answer the argument or don't answer the argument? This is what wisdom calls us to. Wisdom calls us to discern in the moment to figure out what is it that God is doing? What is it that God is active in in this moment where we are in time? And how are we partnering with God in this? This is an invitation to a journey. This is an invitation to explore. 
This is an invitation to sit with God and say, okay, I'm in this situation. What do I do? And we wait, and we discern, and we pray, and we find the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit's trying to lead and guide us in these moments. And that's where we find this depth of the relationship with God is in these moments of having to figure out what it is that God is doing where we are here and now. One of the phrases that I don't use in my preaching is the Bible says. I don't use this phrase, and uh, you know, maybe if you go back far enough in our podcast history, you could find an example of me using it, but I can say with confidence for the last years, I don't use the phrase, the Bible says. Because when someone uses the Bible says, they're saying, this is my interpretation. So when we talk about a skilled debater is able to use the Bible to say whatever they want, I got a question for you, and if you want to answer, you can, or you can let me answer it. But what is the most common form of marriage that appears in Scripture? Anyone know? Arranged? What a, there's, oh, that's actually the word I wasn't thinking of, but arranged marriages are still practiced today. There's a, a slightly different word I'm looking for. Polygamy. In fact, patriarchal polygamy, where women are property, is the most common form of marriage in the Bible. And so if you were to take the Bible and just say, let's go by what occurs the most, I'm not arguing for this, by the way. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable in this way, okay? I mean, this is an example. The most common form of marriage in Scripture is patriarchal polygamy. That is a fact. You can't debate that and say it's not. So it is 100% true to say the Bible says marriage should be patriarchal polygamy. That is a true fact. But is that right? Is that wise? Is that walking with the Spirit? Well, see, by the time of our New Testament scriptures, something happened in the culture. In fact, Greek and Roman culture and understanding and viewpoints of the world became the dominant culture of the world. And so our first century scriptures are written deeply in a Roman context. And in fact, what causes the shift towards monogamy and a monogamous understanding was really more the influence of Greek and Roman understanding. Polygamy was viewed as barbaric under Greek and Roman law. And then when Jesus gets asked a question about divorce, excuse me, when Jesus gets asked a question about this, he says, Yeah, this is God's design all along. Mark 10, verse 7 and 9. Jesus says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Not the many, the two. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. When Jesus is questioned about this, he then says, Well, look, this is what God wanted all along. This was the purpose. And so it is equally true, I can say the Bible says marriage is patriarchal polygamy, and it's equally true to say the Bible says marriage is monogamy, but those two statements contradict each other. So what do we do? I want to start with saying the first step to this is we avoid the phrase the Bible says. Because when you say the Bible says, what you're really saying is the Bible, according to my chosen interpretation and personal beliefs, says blank. See, the ambiguous nature of the Bible is not a problem when we recognize the diversity of the context, the history, and we center our understanding of Scripture on Jesus. We say all of Scripture is God-breathed. 
All of Scripture is inspired. All of Scripture was written by people who are walking with God and being revealed how to explore and write about their understanding of who God is. But when we read Scripture, we center it on Jesus. And we take what Jesus says as the interpretive key to understand more of Scripture. Now, we have to honor and respect the culture and history, especially of our Old Testament Scriptures. We need to recognize that they are also Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. You'll hear me use that phrase, um, Hebrew Scriptures, when I talk about the Old Testament at times, because we want to honor the fact that we have a shared ownership of our Scriptures. But we also have Jesus. We also have the Holy Spirit guiding us, and so we center and we focus on that. The ambiguous nature of the Bible is not a problem when we center our understanding of Scripture on who Christ is and what He taught and what He came to do. And so the third of the the three words, the Bible is diverse. I think this one we also tend to inherently understand as we read Scripture. That when we read Scripture, even just on a level of literary understanding, The Bible's diversity is on display through the literary genres that are used within it. You start at the beginning and you have books of history, you have books of genealogy, books of law, then you get into books of poetry and wisdom, you get into the writings of the minor, of the prophets, then you jump over to the New Testament and you have the Gospels and you have Acts, which is a history book sandwiched in the middle there. And then you have the epistles, letters that are being written to people, um, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to churches, sometimes for wide circulation. And then you get to Revelation, this book of Apocrypha, which is a genre that we don't have a modern equivalent to. And the reality is there is um, apocryphal writings all throughout Scripture, and sometimes even in the same book, and even one chapter to the next, the genre of what we're reading changes. And all of these changes shape how we understand what we're looking at. And we get this. If you like to read, you read a fiction novel very differently than you read an instruction manual for your dishwasher, right? You don't read an instruction manual saying, well, where's the conflict? Where's the narrative? Where's the actors? Where's the characters? We don't. We're reading it for information. But when we come to our scriptures, one of the questions we have to ask is, what are we reading? What type of work are we reading? When are we reading? When did this happen? When did this occur? And what's happening in the bigger picture around them? One of the things I find fascinating lately um, is reading the, the later prophets of the Old Testament and rereading these with the understanding of what does it mean for them to be in the the second exile, to be captured people. Many of them have been carted off to Babylon, and they're living in this very different culture, not where they intended to. They've lost the promised land. They've lost the temple. And they're trying to figure out, well, who are we? Where's our God? What happened here? And they're asking these deep, soul-searching questions And in the middle of that, this beautiful literature forms in the words of the prophets of God speaking through his people, telling them not what they thought they needed, but what they actually need in that moment. And there is incredible beauty and wonder in the words that God had for his people as they are faced with this massive shifting world around them. That's the invitation that scripture gives to us to look at it, to look at our world around us and say, what do we do now? 
So, now that I've made you properly uncomfortable by talking about the Bible as being ancient, ambiguous, and diverse, I'm glad no one's bolted for the doors yet, that is an option, um, how do we read the Bible? How do we actually read Scripture if we recognize and we understand that the Bible is ancient, ambiguous, and diverse? So here's where I'm going to give you the shortcut that took me a couple years to figure out. The Bible is a collection of writings that tells us of our loving God who seeks to redeem and restore everything back into a relationship with himself. This is the big picture. This is the big arc. And everything we read ties into this somehow, that God has something he is doing. He is calling us back to know him. He is calling us to know how he loves us. And the way that the Bible does that is that the Bible does this through writings that reveal to us how people understood their relationship with God during their own time, context, and history. When we read Scripture, we are reading a a moment of time of people trying to figure out and write down that as they walked with God, this is how we understand things to be. And so just like Joel had in his little testimony that he read to us before he was baptized, he talked about the journey that his life was on, how God was calling him to know who God is. That's what we see at every instance and every crossroad in Scripture, is God trying to call his people to know him, and also how we royally screw things up as people, and how we constantly will choose the path that takes us away from God. And what does God do? He calls us back in. He calls us back home. And so if I want to even simplify this down further, we can say that the Bible is filled with narrative stories that reveal God. Scripture is filled with stories. Stories are an intrinsic part of what it means to be human. If you think about when you meet someone new for the first time, you know, the the conversations you have, you tell people stories about yourself. You know, maybe this was a number of years ago, or maybe this is the phase of your relationship you're in, but when you met, you know, when you're dating someone, there's this starting point of your relationship where you're telling stories about where you grew up, the things you've done, what your family's like. You're telling the other person about you by your stories. And then eventually those stories start to trickle away, and you start working on writing a new story together. Our very nature as human beings is we seek for meaning, and the primary tool that we use to find meaning is narrative. We look for stories. We look for moments in our lives where there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And so right now, I'm at this point where one chapter is ending and another chapter is starting, and so I'm just uber-reflective on this whole narrative story as I'm trying to bring this one to a close. And also, while I'm thrilled and excited to see the story that will be written hereafter, See, the Bible is filled with these narrative stories that reveal God to us. Even the books of law are stories. The books of poetry are telling stories. The genealogies, I used to always skip over those, and then you start seeing stories of where there's these people that God plucks out of the timeline and draws in and says, see, look at that person that everyone rejected. Oh, they're part of the family line of Jesus. 
Moments like that of God calling us in to experience the wonder of His love being on display through stories. And we see this even bigger and more clearly when we get to the Gospels. When we get to these four accounts we have of Jesus' life, what's the most common way that Jesus taught? Parables. He told stories. He would get asked a question, and Jesus rarely, very rarely said yes or no. Most of the time, he asked a question, and then he'd follow up that question with a story, a parable. And so these narratives, these stories, invite us in to learn by placing ourselves in those parables. When Jesus tells the parable of the, of the, law, of the prodigal son, I mean, we call it the prodigal son, that word isn't even in the, the text, But the son who walks away and leaves his father, takes his inheritance early, which is akin to saying to his father, I wish you were dead. You know, so he insults his father. He takes half his father's money, which the father never should have done in their culture in their time, but he did. Then he runs off and wastes the money, and then a famine hits, and then he hits rock bottom, and he doesn't know what to do. And he's trying to figure it out. And so he says, you know, back home, my father's servants are eating better than I am. And so he makes this decision, he makes this plan that he's going to go back to his father and ask to be a servant. And what happens when he returns? The father is waiting. The father runs to him, grabs him and embraces him before he can even go through his story of saying, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father throws a party for him and celebrates his son's return. He says, my son was dead and is now alive. And the brother who had been there all along is moping and brooding off in the fields and says, I've been here all along. You've never celebrated me. The father says, don't you realize everything I have is yours? When Jesus tells a parable like that, we're supposed to put ourselves in it and say, which one are we? Are we the son who ran away and lost everything? Or we the son that has walked and been there but not even realized we're there with God? See, Jesus tells parables because these stories have power and they invite us in to explore and wonder. And in this beautiful intersection of Scripture and the Holy Spirit speaking in our imagination, we start to see things differently and we start to see things more clearly. And that's where we find the wisdom that Scripture is trying to teach us. The narrative power of Scripture is amazing, and it draws us to see the bigger narrative from Genesis through to Revelation, to see what God is doing on a bigger scale and what He is inviting us in this moment in time to be part of. Now, there's a second type of narrative that happens in Scripture, and this one I think is even cooler than the first. And maybe this is something, a new, a new idea to you, but there's also a big thread in Scripture called the counter-narrative. And a counter-narrative is simply another story that runs counter to the bigger narrative. And let me use an, an example of this to explain is, we all are living in a narrative story right now. We are all living in a moment of time as humanity collectively makes decisions, and every decision we make is part of an interconnected system, and every choice we make affects those around us. That's just the nature of being in a human society. All of our choices affect the people around us. The political right and the political left are both also speaking stories and saying, look, 
this thing is how we got here right now. And if we keep going on this path, that's where we're going to end up. And if we don't want to go on that path, you need to vote for us so that we reach this path. All sides of the political spectrum are using that type of narrative to try to get your vote. Politics in a nutshell. They are telling a counter-narrative. And the counter-narrative that is the most appealing will get the most votes and will shape how people act and then steer the main narrative in that direction. A counter-narrative is a compelling story that will cause us to change the actual narrative of what is happening in our world and in our lives and in our society today. I know this is, this is a little 30,000 feet, so let's bring this down and go to one of the Gospels. Gospel of Mark, the first of the four Gospels to be written, even though it's not first in our New Testament. Mark 1.1 begins this way. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We might read this verse and then just, okay, let's carry on through Mark. This verse is a bombshell. This verse is a arrest full stop, whoa, whoa, wait, you said what? And we don't catch that. Because this verse is the beginning of a counter-narrative. In the Roman Empire, the Romans knew propaganda well. They knew how to convince people that the emperor was the son of God. And every time the Roman Empire expanded and they sent their armies to conquer somewhere and they would defeat some nation group, they would send people through the entire Roman army to give the message and to tell the story of the battle. Was it an accurate story? Probably not, because Romans were excellent at propaganda. So when these messengers from Rome traveled, what did they do? They would come to a town and they would proclaim, good news, the emperor, the son of God, has fought for you and won. Wait, that's what Mark said. And what was the name of those messengers? The messengers that the Roman Empire used were called evangelists. Euangelion, the bearers of good news. So the moment Mark begins his gospel this way, and he says, this is the good news, He's ripping terms off from the Roman propaganda machine. He says, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Oh, now he's using empire talk. Not to form an empire, but to say, look at what God is doing. This verse tells us that the entire story of the Gospel of Mark, he is writing to counter the propaganda of the powers that be of the day. This is a counter-narrative story. And the gospel, the good news, what Jesus came to do, that Jesus came to open a new path for us to know God, for us to have freedom in Him, for us to know salvation, to be justified, to be regenerated, to experience sanctification, to know God, to be transformed and shaped just like what we celebrated with the baptism today. This is the good news. Mark is telling a counter-narrative to the world's story to invite people in to what God is doing in this moment. The Bible is filled with counter-narrative stories that invite us to see the world in a different way and choose a different path. Not to just go along with the narratives that we hear and we get told, but to say we want to be part of the narrative and the story that God is writing. 
And the biggest counter-narrative within all of Scripture is the gospel of Jesus. That God loves us, that God knows us, that God came into the world to make it possible for us to be in a relationship with him. That Jesus came knowing that he would be executed unjustly and that he would flip that execution into the biggest triumph in history. It's counter-narrative all over it. So what do we do? How do we find this counter-narrative? How do we find this gospel? How do we dive in towards this? How do we handle this ancient, ambiguous, diverse collection of writings that is so beautiful and so wonderful when we dive into it? So once again, I want to go to the words of Jesus. John tells us about a time when Jesus is interacting with a group of religious leaders that are stuck in that jigsaw puzzle or rule book understanding of their scriptures. They're stuck in the rules and trying to get people to follow the rules the way they follow the rules, and they're not really doing business with the fact that the way people are following the rules is making the religious leaders wealthy, and they're extorting their people. They're not dealing with that part of it. And so Jesus, in the middle of this kind of he's chastising these religious leaders for how they've treated Scripture, he says to them this. He says, you search the Scriptures because they, you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Like, this is fairly early on in Jesus' ministry. I'm really surprised when I think about the, the implication of what Jesus says in this moment they even let him get from this point to when they finally did kill him. Because he's saying to them, your scriptures do not give you eternal life. Eternal life is not found in the Bible. The Bible, or scriptures, point us to Jesus. And Jesus is where we find eternal life. Scripture is signposts. Scripture is a map that leads us to Jesus. Scripture itself is not what gives salvation. Jesus does. And Scripture points us to Jesus. Scripture points us to the wisdom. Scripture points us to how the Holy Spirit's going to walk with us. And so to kind of summarize and pull this together and where my journey with the Bible came to was to this point of saying that the Bible is a collection of sacred writings that reveal to us how people understood their relationship with God, and they invite us into the work of being led by the Holy Spirit to discover our own relationship with God in our moment of time. It's a long, wordy description. I don't know how to wordsmith that down into something smaller. But the Bible reveals to us how people understood God in their moment of time. And it draws us, it herds us along, I like that metaphor, to seeing what God is doing in this moment of time and what God is leading us towards. This isn't an easy journey. This is kind of like if you took your jigsaw puzzle and all the pieces just constantly kind of started shifting. Like, imagine a jigsaw puzzle made of Play-Doh. You want those two pieces to fit? Well, you can just force it. It doesn't really work. 
In fact, Pete uses the jigsaw puzzle metaphor, and, and he says it a little differently, and, and I, I'm still wrestling and trying to figure out if I like this one or not. But he says, if you want to view the Bible as a jigsaw puzzle, it's like you have a thousand-piece puzzle, but they only gave you 80 of the pieces. How, how are you going to figure out what the picture is? Or even where they were? The jigsaw puzzle doesn't work. It leads to eventually flipping the table and storming out when the pieces don't fit because we're trying to make the pieces fit in a way that they were never made to fit. Instead, as we walk this path of discovery, the Bible points us to Jesus and to wisdom. And that can be our foundation. That can be our starting point of a journey of discovery. That can be what leads us closer to the Holy Spirit. And the cool part about this is that also means we can't do it alone. We need community around us. We need people to walk with us. We need people to challenge our assumptions. We need to be willing to sit and talk about Scripture and at the end go, I don't know. But we can try to figure it out together. We can pause. We can spend time discerning. We can spend time praying. We can spend time trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. We can spend time reading other stories from Scripture and starting to see how they interact. Start looking for the story of the exile in every other part of the Bible, and you'll see it. God keeps telling these stories over and over and over to people because he knows they lead people to experiencing his love. And I could keep going on this for a long time if you were willing to let me, but I'm, I'm going to stop here. But I want to invite you, the next time you open your Bible, the next time you read it, read it with eyes that are searching for a journey. Not the rules, not the cookbook, but read it with eyes that are searching for what's the journey that I'm on that will lead me closer to Jesus. That will change how you read the Bible. That is what has changed for me and changed my understanding of God and my knowledge of his love and my, my faith has been shaped massively by opening scripture and reading it this way. And I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I'm like one step further down that path. I've always viewed my role as a pastor is to take things from one shelf and put it on a lower shelf. And I'm indebted to all the people who are on that ladder in the giant library ahead of me taking things from a higher shelf and putting it down one shelf lower so I can understand it. Next week, I'm going to talk about discipleship. I'm going to talk about what does it mean to grow and change and be transformed. That's going to be my last sermon here. And I just want to encourage you to please be on this journey. Be on this journey of seeking out God's love as how it is revealed in Scripture and be on this journey of walking it together. So next Sunday, we're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to have a potluck. We're going to have a party. It's going to be awesome. Thank you for being here. Uh, let me pray before I wrap up. 
God, your love is so evident through Scripture. And my prayer for this church and for the people here is that we would just see how deep your love is for us, that your Scripture would lead us to see your heart. God, I pray that you would make us be okay with the uncomfortableness. Would you let us be not dismissive, but to sit in the tension and conflict when we read the stories of Scripture that make no sense, when we read the stories of violence and assault and betrayal, that we would still see in there, not to justify those actions, but to see how your heart was breaking and how it still led to your love being shown. And so, God, I just pray that we would see your heart in Scripture as we read it. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here. Um, And again, I really hope you'll join us next Sunday. Thanks.